G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Content Investors weekly podcast radio show. This week, investing in agriculture, plus a look at two of the big dangers facing investors, Australia's bubbly property market and climate change. But first, agriculture. And you'd think this should be an obvious asset class for Australian investors. So I rang up Stephen Anthony, Chief Economist at Industry Super Australia, because he's just produced a big report on the subject. And I asked him whether it's a good performing investment. It is a little hard to ascertain that. We don't have what you would call audit quality data available to assess the performance of the sectors, you know, all the different commodities in agriculture. What we've got is a more kind of a broadacre voluntary survey conducted by the ABS. Now, if you filter through that on farm size, you find that for large farms, the sort the sort of farms that you know institutions would invest in, the returns look quite respectable in excess of six percent through time, um, you know six to ten percent that sort of thing. So that looks that looks reasonable, and anecdotally we understand that you know a lot of the Family farm offices do a lot better than that, although we can't really prove that. You say in the discussion paper that historically average broadacre farms returns have been quite poor, around 1% to 3%. That's right. For the average, that's exactly right. That reality and the fact that there have been some notable failures in the sector in terms of, or at least perceived failures, in terms of institutions going into agriculture – and you, you find that trustees are somewhat haunted by the asset class. Um, they don't really understand it and they've heard bad things about it and they have in their mind that the soldier settler farmer who's sort of struggling out there in the back blocks, you know. And in the absence of better information, they just stick with their um, their preconceived notion. You kind of talk about it may be possible to get returns in excess of 10% and you, you quote the example of Warren Buffett who bought a farm in uh, a 400-acre farm in 1986 and uh, did quite well out of it. Do you think that there is a case for individual investors like Warren Buffett to buy farms? Well, yes. I mean, if you think your way through the investment, if you think about it as firstly a property and then as an agribusiness and you think about the, the potential for long-term returns there, that capital gains on your property plus the income that you might get, for, for example, for leasing out the property, usually you can find a way to make these things work. Right. What about the liquidity of the investment? Well, it depends on the scale that you go into the investment. Um, it also depends on, on how the investment is operated, so what model that you put in place to operate it. It is true to say that uh, the ag space is inherently more risky here in Australia than it is, for example, in North America, with a possible exception of California. On the, on the flip side of that, you're paying less for the land that you buy in the first place. Um, so it should be possible through time to manage return. Your question about cash flow, well, that's another issue. Um, we would think that um, uh, cash flow is in part determined by the, by the kind of leverage you go into with the way you set up the, the balance sheet for the farm asset and a bunch of other factors. You certainly need deep pockets if you're going to do this right. What sort of advice would you have for investors, you know, individual investors who are looking at going into agriculture? How do you think they should approach it? I think they should partner with people who've made money in the past 
you know, whether that's um, ag funds based here in Australia or overseas, or whether that's, you know, large family-based operators. It seems to me that the historical lesson that comes through agriculture is that people who try to set up from scratch and, and, and who don't know the, the asset class get wiped out. Really, it does seem that, that there are operators who, who make quite a good living out of agriculture and have been doing it for a long time. And it's bringing those operators to a new level of scale that, that may create a, an opportunity for institutions and individual investors. So how do you go about finding those funds? There's a range of agricultural asset advisories that can be contacted. If you do a little bit of homework, the information can be provided. And perhaps if you read our paper too, we list a bunch of funds and the experts who've helped us draft this thing up. And these people would be great resources if people are looking to invest. Tell us how to find the, just where to find that. It's on the uh, Industry Super Australia website. Yeah, publications website. In fact, I think it's the sort of highlighted publication for the month. So it's right there, industrysuperaustralia.com. Now, you don't really want to buy a farm in your self-managed super fund. It's too big and too much trouble, of course. But there's a new fund starting up designed to consolidate some of Australia's family-owned farms where the average age of the farmer is 60 and the kids have gone to the city and don't want to take it over when Dad retires. The fund is called New Harvest Investment Management, and it's run by Mark McConnell, the founder of a listed technology business called Citadel Group. I asked him how he sees the big picture for investing in agriculture. The global population is increasing. There's a growing and affluent middle class in Southeast Asia that want a lot of the things that Australia is producing, but the amount of decent farmland is shrinking. So you add all those dynamics up and it tells you that on any measure, Australian productive Australian farmland is cheap on a global scale. I don't think we appreciate it as much as we should. But the really interesting thing here demographically is that there's no secession plan in agricultural Australia. I think the Family Business Institute of Australia estimates that over 70% of farms don't have a secession plan and that the average age of Australian farmers now is around early 60s, so 17 years older than the average Australian employee. So Australian farming as an industry has got some issues. Lack of secession and an ageing population, but growing demand drivers. And then you overlay that with some really interesting data that's coming out of Europe and the States, and that is that in Australia, 95% of farms are held by families. In the US, 72% of farms are owned by corporates. And I guess what that tells us instructively is that there's a little bit of get big or get out. And a lot of the small farms in Australia deny themselves the opportunity to obtain synergy, balance sheet reconstructions and the efficiencies that come with that and obviously the, the buying power to be able to reduce their own costs and move into other markets. I think it might have been John F. Kennedy that once said, farming is the only industry that buys retail, sells wholesale and pays the transport both ways. It's an interesting irony and indictment on the way Australian agriculture is, is run. But suffice to say, there's a lot of small players that deny themselves the opportunities of benefits up the supply chain. What's the return on investment of those small players at the moment? And what sort of return on investment do you think you can achieve? Clearly, a lot of small farmers are at the margin. And 
that's quite well publicised. And even though at the moment you're seeing record high prices across a number of verticals, be it cattle, sheep, grain, a lot of these smaller farmers are still struggling to make a decent living out of it. And it's not until you get large and get diverse, both in terms of your geographic spread and your um, product spread, that you can start to normalise some of the um, highs and lows that you're going to get by being constrained to any one particular vertical. So a lot of these small farms, typically 2 or 3% is a running yield average on those properties. When you start to look at the better REITs out there, some of these funds are generating 6% plus, but it's important to break that down because running yield versus the revaluation of the assets and coming off a, a two to three year period of very high capital growth in um, in agricultural Australia, and, and that's clearly not um, going to be sustainable at the high double digit level forever. Over any longer period of time, um, farming assets tend to have capital growth in the order of sort of 8 to 10%. Now, the skill or the trick or the experience is getting a high commensurate running yield from your operations. Traditionally, that's been really hard to do, but via aggregation and by the use of agricultural technology and I guess by some sustainable leverage, we hope, we're certainly hoping and all of our conservative modelling indicates that we should be able to generate running yields of around 5 to 6% on those assets. So if you start to marry up a reasonable running yield with reasonable historical capital growth, then you know, you're looking at having funds targeting return on equity of in the order of 11 to 13%. And we, we feel that that's pretty attractive to the types of clients that we're seeking at this stage. Will you only get the 5 or 6% running yield if you're running the farm, or do you think you can get that from getting other people to run them? Well, sale and leaseback's running at about 3%. So if you look at the traditional REIT structure and look at their asset base, typically you're in the order of 3 to 4% for sale and leaseback. So predominantly we'll be actively managing our assets and in doing so you know, hope to achieve something slightly better than that. And what sort of crops and livestock will you be running? Well, our targeted geography is really um, prioritising New South Wales, but we're open to opportunities down into down into northern Victoria and potentially into southern Queensland. And the areas that we're looking at lend themselves to cattle breeding, cattle fattening, sheep, wool, a variety of different soft commodities and grains, their cotton, wheat, canola, sorghum, etc. There's a number of opportunities across that space. We're actually um, in the process of recruiting a number of grain traders so we can work up that grain trading environment. And we think there's some good opportunities there. Again, because of the demand drivers coming out of Southeast Asia, we're seeing free trade agreement opening up a number of opportunities. And as I say, uh, cashed up middle class who are now very interested in both food security and food quality. What's your minimum investment? That's still being determined, but our sense is that it's going to be around $20,000. And it's for sophisticated wholesale investors only? Yeah, that's right. So in, initially, it's going to be um, targeting wholesale and institutional funds. And through those networks, we suspect they will in turn position the product to sophisticated investors. What sort of fees are you going to take? The MER at the moment, and this is unlikely to change, is 1.5%. And... I guess a big differentiator here from other funds is that there's no bonus to the manager paid on capital revaluations. There'll only be bonuses paid on 
capital uplift at sale of realisation. So if in a closed fund we hold those assets for seven to nine years, then potentially the, the manager will be paid no bonus through the life of that fund. But there will be some sort of performance fee regime, will there? That's right, but not on an annual basis, not on the revaluing of the assets, only on the realised profit on the sale of an asset. And as I say, we think that's a big differentiator. The people who are behind this fund, who have all done well in various investment banking careers, uh, are not setting this up to drain fees on a quarterly or annual basis. They're doing this to build a serious aggregation of Australian assets. And what sort of size of fund are you looking for? The feedback we had from a number of focus groups in working with um, the banks suggested there's comfortable appetite in the range of 250 to 300 million. There's certainly a very well developed pipeline of uh, potential assets. It's been interesting to watch. Uh, if you'd tried to set a fund up like this 12 months ago, you would have struggled to put a worked pipeline together. Now, when we look at our mandate and we look at the types of assets available in the market, we can see line of sight to about $1 to $1.2 billion worth of assets that would fit our mandate. So we're quite confident that we will be able to deploy the capital within the first 12 months. I mean, I was going to say that, I mean, if we've got, what, 92% of Australia's farms are owned by families and um, the average age is 60 plus, there's a bit of an opportunity for roll-up in the future, isn't there? Absolutely. And we're by no means the only ones who are thinking that way. <laughs> there are a number of other startup funds in the market who have got that same uh, thesis. There are a number of natural sellers and natural buyers in the market at the moment. And I suspect you really are going to see a once in a decade, if not once in a lifetime, change of ownership of a lot of Australian assets. And a lot of that will go to corporates and funds because there simply aren't replacement families queuing up to take over um, historically family-owned assets. Do you think it'll be more funds than corporates or the other way around? Uh, hard to tell. Um, we're seeing a lot of strong interest from foreign pension funds. So if you look at um, you know, the amount of Australian assets that are held by foreign investors, it's approximately 14% of agricultural assets are held by a variety of um, you know, corporates and, and foreign entities. But the most active buyers have been large um, pension funds out of Canada, out of the US, out of the UK, um, been very active in recent years. Interestingly, um, uh, our own superannuation industry hasn't been too keen on Australian agriculture, but a lot of long-term pension funds have been uh, very active over the last few years, particularly Canada. Right. What sort of advice would you give to sort of a small investor who was interested in getting exposure to agriculture in Australia, apart from investing in your fund, of course? <laughs> Be it our fund or a range of other very good agricultural funds. It's hard to deny the statistics, Alan, and, and that is that global population is increasing. We have free trade agreements on our doorstep. There are cashed-up middle-class consumers that place a high level of value on food security and food quality, and Australia is perfectly placed at the right time to do this. And I think we can present a better front to these investors by um, aggregating and, and, and collectivising a lot of the assets that have been managed by families to date. And now for the more difficult news. Michael Kark runs Monarch Property Partners, one of Australia's burgeoning property development financiers that stepped in where the banks fear to tread, funding apartment developers. 
I asked him whether he has any concerns about what's going on. As I say, property is very much a, you know, sort of property by property and sort of street by street and, you know, sort of a proposition. But, you know, just looking globally, I do have concerns for the residential high-rise market or high-density market. And, you know, I think that um, a lot of projects have been undertaken with a very homogenous sort of product, which, you know, if there is an oversupply, it's going to be very difficult to resell that product, which is why, uh, you know, as I say, two to three years ago, we we made a strategic decision to really focus on middle property market and really make that part of the market ours. Um, but yes, I, I can I can definitely see uh, a world in which some of the larger investment style homogenous product ends up not settling and ends up needing to be discounted in order to move. So you would expect, therefore, there to be bigger price declines in the apartment in the very high density end of the market than um, than the rest of the market? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to which are the areas and which are the apartments do people really want to live in? And, you know, if we're talking about the sort of the blue ribbon suburbs around, uh, around Melbourne and we're talking about, you know, high-end or owner-occupier-focused uh, product, that's always going to have a market. There's always going to be a market for that product. If you're talking about inner city, high density product targeting the overseas or local investor, I think that that sort of product is going to, going forward, be more difficult to sell or resell if, if they default. And I can see an oversupply of that sort of product. Are you seeing any of that? Yes. I, I'm not at the moment. I think the other thing to bear in mind is that our business is uh, you know, very much focused on middle property market. And what I mean by that is we look at projects between 30 and 100 apartments, if we're talking about apartments. Uh, so we're very much at the owner-occupier product offering. And the reason why we chose the segment of the market is because we actually identified this two to three years ago, that this segment of the market would have the lowest risk of settlement defaults. And even if there were settlement defaults, the probability of being able to resell those apartments in a, in a short space of time you know, would be maximized. So we haven't seen any settlement defaults with any of our projects. And anecdotally, speaking to the banks and speaking to other financiers, they aren't seeing any settlement defaults either on, with foreign purchasers. What they are seeing is that foreign purchasers might be taking a while longer to settle their pre-sales, but they all end up settling, you know, eventually. Do you think that the loan-to-value ratios at the larger end of the market will leave some of the development funders vulnerable? Definitely. I mean, I think that the market has shifted very quickly and quite dramatically in terms of the extent over the last, even over the last 24 months. One can palpably see that the difference in what banks are prepared to to fund and support so yes, definitely, um, you know, the bank's uh, policies are lead, leaving the larger projects exposed. Having said that, I mean, some of those larger projects have been funded by overseas hedge funds, and we've seen a large influx of hedge fund money out of the States and Asia, and those projects are getting done, they're getting funded on very competitive terms. So yes, there is an element of vulnerability, 
However, I have, you know, I have seen how other parties have come into full the void. And finally, on the subject of climate change, which, of course, continues to dominate politics one way or the other, I spoke to Emma Hurd, who's the CEO of something called the Investor Group on Climate Change, which is pushing for better reporting of climate risks by companies. And when you get down to it, they're doing this so institutional investors know which companies to avoid because they're too risky. So they haven't tried to be prescriptive as precisely how you do it within the regulatory frameworks of the individual nations. But what they've said is that companies should be looking to do it in in, in a standardised way, so using the same language, using the same terms, getting consistency around how they calculate it. And then regulators should be looking at how they um, begin to align their financial disclosure frameworks with some of these recommendations. So it's voluntary, but it's voluntary in the same way that international accounting standards are voluntary, in that everybody uses them and they end up being reflected in the regulatory regime at the end of the day. I thought the accounting standards were not voluntary. You had to abide by them, that they're incorporated in the law. Well, I mean, definitely the next, the next stage at this point is to actually look at how you align accounting standards with the recommendations here. So I guess it's, a, it's an iterative process. It's sort of moving into the, the mandatory disclosure regime, I guess is the point that I'm making. The material that you've put out indicates that a few big companies, including BHP and I think AGL, are already doing it. What are they doing that you think other companies should do? Well, there's two things that they're doing. I mean, one is that they're actually getting a lot more specific about what they're reporting in their climate change disclosures within their normal financial reporting. We've had about 10, 15 years now, maybe close to 20 years of companies putting out sustainability reports, which, you know, sort of look about the non-financial performance dimensions of a company across a range of different areas, which kind of give you a much more integrated view of total company performance. So things like gender diversity, corporate governance regimes, their social impact, reputational issues, and environmental performance. So what this this framework is aiming to do is to sort of say, let's move from a a qualitative-type climate change disclosure framework where companies make statements such as, we accept the science of climate change and we're acting to reduce our footprint, and let's move into a much more quantified analysis of the actual financial implications of climate change trends for the company performance. I guess your members are looking for this so they can figure out which companies to avoid. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I I don't think it's any accident that you've seen very strong support from the investor community for both the establishment and the robust implementation of this framework. And you will see very strong take-up and ongoing pressure from investors in Australia and globally on companies to begin disclosing against this framework. And a lot of the shareholder resolution activity that we've seen in recent years around climate change resolutions have been around disclosure against the TCFD and two-degree scenario analysis. And But even before we get to that, even more importantly, it's increasingly a core component of corporate engagement between investors and companies. Tell us what your response is to the TCFD. Tell us what your two-degree plan is. That is only going to, to accelerate even more now that you actually have the finalisation of the recommendations of this framework. Voluntary or not, it will increasingly become the basis of investor expectations of company response to climate change. But how will you know whether companies are talking rubbish or not? Do you want it to be included in the audit? Well, I mean, financial disclosures, you want it to be treated with the same level of robustness and discipline and uh, veracity that you see in any kind of financial disclosure in the market. 
it's a legitimate question because on the other side, the investors themselves are now under pressure to to have the information, the expertise that they need to interrogate the response from the company. The thing is, the financial disclosures are audited. Yes. So, and the, one of the core recommendations of the TCFD is integrate this into your financial filings, your financial disclosures. So, treat it with the same level of respect that you treat your financial reporting. And, and, and get it audited and assured to the same level. I think in the next 12 to 18 months, you'll also see a lot of big Australian companies who have work underway behind the scenes beginning to come out with much more standardised reporting on this. It won't happen all at once. It will be report by report, year by year. But I think you'll definitely see that trend continuing to accelerate in terms of companies using consistent language, consistent metrics, consistent approaches to communicating climate change as financial risk. Happy birthday, Woody Guthrie, born 14th of July 1912 and died of Huntington's disease in 1967. Without him, we wouldn't have Bob Dylan, maybe not Joan Baez, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen maybe. And this song is one of the reasons for that. Well, I'm going to tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organised. You're bound to lose, you fascists, bound to lose. Thanks to the fabulous Constant team and to Ism Studios for the music. And I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning.